What's up, Energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but before we keep going, I want to make an announcement to tell everyone about my new sponsor, Inflow Control. They're a technology company dedicated to improving the efficiency of oil recovery while simultaneously reducing the industry's environmental impact using autonomous inflow control valve technology, also known as AICV. This breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water, which enables mature oil fields to be more profitable by supporting oil productions from zones that would have typically been bypassed. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn or at inflowcontrol.no. Thanks. Awesome. Well, here we are. Rob, you're back. Uh, I want to welcome everyone back to another episode of uh, Wicked Energy with JG. I'm sitting here with Rob Barnett, a gentleman that flew all the way from London, not to see me, I can promise you. Um, But you're here. We're finally get to meet in person. It's been a while. And uh, yeah, happy to to see you, man. How you been? Yeah, I've been doing well. It's really great to see you. It's good to be in America for a change. And it's also good to be here in Houston. I I used to come to Houston a lot. Okay. When I was uh, earlier in my career, since I've been living in London, it's a it's more rare for me to come here, but it's uh, always lovely to be in Texas. I, I'm sure. And so, because you were in the U.S. not too long ago, relatively speaking, for some vacation, Orlando was it? Yep. Yeah. I did. I did Orlando last uh, last August. Okay. I actually came through Houston in December. I, I was, uh, it was too too rushed, or else I would have said hello then. So you know, I I would imagine that based off of you know your experience and the years that you've been in the industry, when you go to certain cities, there's probably a long list of people that you could reach out to, and it's either you reach out to all of them or just none at all, and and then you may stumble across them every once in a while. So to to be on the list, I'm absolutely honored. Uh, I don't know how I managed to make the list, but I appreciate you reaching out. Um, how long are you in town for? Just a couple of days. I'm flying out on Wednesday, so this is okay. a pretty brief trip for me this time. No but, kidding. Uh, got some other th- obligations in New York City later this week, and nice. We have quite a big customer base there, so absolutely. Uh, Got to go see the finance, energy finance people of the world there. I'm sure everyone's uh, just looking forward to some some guidance from from Rob here after what's been going on lately. So I have to ask. What what is most exciting to you right now in energy markets? Like what's exciting? Just something you just can't get off of. Well, there's so much. I mean, I think in the very short run, it's it's hard not to pay attention to what's going on in in the banking world, right? You know, I I think I'd never heard of Silicon Valley Bank a few weeks ago, or maybe heard it in passing once or twice. I do have some friends who work in the tech industry, and I think had heard mention of it from them in the past, but not anything that I'd ever thought much about. And to suddenly go from, oh, now we're suddenly talking about Silicon Valley Bank, and then watching so many of the energy-exposed and commodity-exposed 
industries, companies kind of really take a, a pretty big hit here from that is is quite interesting. Yeah. So, I, I mean, in the very short run, just kind of paying attention to what's happening in the banking world and thinking through, you know, is is the pullback in oil price, you know, something that's because there's this very tangible hit on demand that could be coming because of uh, a banking uh, you, you know, failure, or is it because oil and and other things in in the market are just simply kind of the all asset classes are just moving together? And so, yeah. you know, what's what's going on? Is there is there effect on the fundamentals, or are the fundamentals sound? And so, yeah. I think right now that that's sort of the, the very immediate question on right. my mind, and I think a lot of our customers' minds. But then longer term, it's all about kind of what's the right mix we we mm-hmm. get the sense that the world's changing there's all of this stuff around energy transition all very exciting mm-hmm. at the same time fossil fuel demand has been very resilient and growing in most instances uh, yeah. so so you've got a world where wind solar electric vehicles all these things are growing super fast but so is demand for fossil fuels. So we're in this kind of really interesting time period yeah. where all of the above used to be a term to get thrown around. But I think we are truly in this all of the above era. Yeah. And that's also fascinating. So we've got the near term banking situation yeah. that's affecting all markets, including energy markets. And we've got this energy transition backdrop to it all which shows it's a great time to be in energy it is i think it, like and like you said the all all of the above was kind of that loose turn to say oh yeah i'm kind of for everything but now i, I think it it looking at it I, I think that the reality is it's going to and i don't think anyone argued that at any point in time but i, I think the extremists on either side I, I you're hearing less and less of them and i think there's a lot more constructive and healthy conversation about okay what now that we've gotten, you know, my ideologies out of the way and your ideology out of the way, like, let's look at the fundamentals, the facts, the science to understand like, hey, you know, um, because ultimately, like you said, energy demand is not going anywhere. Oil demand obviously is pretty strong. We've got, you know, all this talks about China and, and, and all the demand that they're going to be, uh, you know, putting into the market. Um, a lot of, you know, non-OECD countries. I mean, if unless this whole fu- this banking thing just completely de- like creates a bunch of demand destruction, which I don't know, may or may not happen. Um, I'm, I'm curious on, on the banking side, do you, do you think we're sort of at a point where like we're okay? And like, do you think this is going to be a domino effect, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and could it be, I mean, I don't know the, fin- the the banking world enough to be like, well, now that this has happened, all the rest of them are going to, you know, fault or, or, you know, sell off. But yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts around that? Are we at like the ninth inning in this like short little flash in the pan, or is this just the start of it? Yeah, I mean, well, e- even though I uh, work in the industry I work in, I I think mostly about energy and fundamentals for energy markets. Yeah. So I think I'm 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 definitely like an interloper to say anything about the sort of broader finance world, but clearly governments around the world seem to be racing to kind of calm the markets put put the backstops in place to sort of stop the contagion and stop the crisis so Mm -hmm. let's see whether they're successful and i don't have a good sense on whether you know we're, we're sort of over the hump or whether there's 
more dominoes to fall. That's yeah. that's that's something that I would say. Well, let's just see what happens <laughs> on the market front. Right. But what I would say, you know, if you think about oil, which is pretty interesting, right? If you go back and look at all of the recessions, whether the global financial crisis or just in general over the last few decades, the biggest hit to oil demand in any significant way was was COVID, and that right. that was steep. Mm-hmm. We've we've never seen anything like that, e- even when we've had a financial crisis in the past. So, I think oil demand generally doesn't fall more than a few percent, e- even when you have a recession, at right. least at the global level, right? So, yeah, y- you know, my sense would be that while the demand impacts aren't necessarily going to be zero it's it's it it would be surprising i think to most observers if it was anywhere close to sort of a covid level disruption for sure no i i would agree and that was one thing that when this whole recession fear which i i think is somewhat still there and then this week is a big week for here in the u.s whether or not they actually increase interest rates whether they pause or whether they hold back and you know there, there's everyone's kind of on edge waiting to see what, what happens but for us in the world that i play in being oil field services which is directly tied to rig count and to oil prices and all the rest of it looking at a recession trying to forecast okay if a recession hits like what 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 does the crystal ball say for rig count and it was interesting because i didn't realize that it really doesn't make a huge dent so you they call it three percent on a you know 100 million a day uh you know consumption globally that's that's not that much right it's like it, it so um which was interesting to to hear i'm curious on a little bit of a pivot but we're talking about all of the above and and the reality is is we need a, a lot of all of it is the is the investment community looking at you know with oil and gas companies and the returns that they've seen is the investment community has a little is shifting at all like do you think we're going to be able to get and i say we as an oil and gas are going to get money from from you know outside or are we just going to have to fund this ourselves because i think it's it's interesting because for so long or say for so long for the last while it's you know we're under invested and we don't have the capacity to ramp up and so all the oil bulls are like rah 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 um do, do you see that shifting at all relative to their peers uh for lack of better terms yeah, so I think I think there is this real phenomena that's happened in the industry that there appears to have been underinvestment, particularly following COVID, mm. right? And so it, it's it's really tough to say how much investment is required to meet the demand for energy, mm-hmm. partly because the efficiency of investment has arguably improved a lot because, because of shale. So Interesting. Yeah. The, the, the perc- how many billions of dollars need to be invested just to keep oil supply flat, right? Like it's, it's a pretty big number, yeah. but it, it, it's it, and sort of pegging where that number is is should be or could be, it looks really different today than pre-shale discovery. Right. Be- because you could you can deploy a lot less capital for reliable volumes, essentially, uh, in in some markets um, yeah. now because of that innovation. And so, um, but but with with all of that said, I think 
you're seeing a very clear pivot uh, in Europe right now where you've got BPs and other companies saying that they're going to allocate more capex to traditional EMP investment mm. in 2023 and for some of the coming years. Interesting. And I, I would argue that that is not really a substantial U-turn on any of their transition thinking, right? So gotcha. the European oil majors or energy majors, as they want to be known, are really thinking about a, a very different future. And they are planning to really change some of their capital allocations over the coming years. Now, in the short run, they have decided, hey, look at what's going on with oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're putting more CapEx to play there in the short run. But I don't think they're abandoning any of their long-term visions about how the energy sector is going to unfold over, say, a three-decade time period. Gotcha. So there is some sense that some of the European majors and perhaps elsewhere need to invest more and that they are planning to invest more at least to help meet short-term energy needs. And let's let's see whether that actually comes to fruition or not. But they right. seem to be trickling through into planning and CapEx budgets. Interesting. Is that more to please investors or is it more to meet energy demand or a combination of both? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say it it's a bit a bit of both right the european energy managers have been under a very different set of pressures from investors that i For think sure. has been slowly coming over to the us and there is this really interesting debate happening here right now because the esg has become almost a, a a bad word in many, <laughs> many circles and yeah. you're seeing uh you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida and some of the other presidential hopefuls talk about ESG as sort of a, a cause of many of the problems uh, that, that the world is facing. And I, yeah. I, I'll take no, um, no real stance on whether that's right or wrong, but yeah. just to say that European investors have been putting like an ESG lens on the European energy companies for some time. And what that really means is that ESG for oil companies is about managing your carbon footprint, reducing your carbon footprint over time, or setting the aspirations for for doing that, and kind of what does that mean, and all, all these sorts of questions. And so I think the European energy majors are a bit ahead of perhaps their North American counterparts in terms of really thinking about that and having a plan for that. I will say one other thing that's very interesting and ironic to, to bring it back to the banking conversation. I think Silicon Valley Bank was <clears throat> a company that a lot of ESG investors were quite fond of, right? Oh, so, interesting. Um, okay. be, because they uh, were a big funder of, you know, community solar and climate startups and all of these kinds of things, and right. so uh, m- most of or quite a large number of the ESG funds in Europe had Silicon Valley Bank as as an investment, right? So it's kind of, ah. it is kind of an interesting world in which we live and Yeah. Um and those and hmm. you know 
whether it's Shell, BP, Equinor, Total, you know, these companies also have quite a bit of ESG disclosures as well. And so, you know, they, they also uh, participate in, in those conversations. But but the one, so, so to Exxon and Chevron, right? You know, they, yeah. there's all kinds. I think nowadays it's really hard to uh, not have any answer on ESG. And the, the guy who runs our department, here at Bloomberg is quite fond of saying, you know, in in the next few years, all analysts are going to do some a bit of ESG in their work. So you know, I'm we're sure, yeah. we're traditionally mostly like financial analysts, um, industry analysts, pe- people have some knowledge about the markets and fundamentals. But increasingly, yeah. we get asked a lot of ESG related questions, and so we've got to be more sophisticated in understanding that part of the story and how it feeds into the, the sort of total investment thesis for at least for some investors. So on the ESG front, do you think any either the E, the S or the G has more weight than the other one when we're talking about like looking at it and like you said on Bloomberg side, is it mainly focused on the environmental piece or and sustainability, I guess? I mean I think I th- I think ESG has mostly been about E for the energy companies. Yeah. But that being said, it's it's uh, it's not in general. It's not for a lot of uh, investors. I think the uh, here in the U.S. there's this really interesting debate about, and and I don't know whether you'll even know the answer to this, but uh, some of the largest ESG funds in North America. What which stock do you think they'd have a preference for, Tesla or Exxon? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Exxon. Yeah, and it, it is, it is interesting. So, yeah, uh, a number of the ESG funds that are focused on the North American market do hold Exxon, partly for their disclosures and things like that. And a number of them don't hold Tesla, uh, and mainly for um, the G component, right? Because yeah. um, I think for the governance issue, a lot of it has to do with board composition, how powerful is the CEO, this kind of stuff. And, sure. um, and I think I, my understanding is that's where uh, Tesla might get knocked, even though they are very prominent and important on the E side of the equation. So yeah. uh, ESG definitely, in theory, and on paper, doesn't mean it's uh, a company that's you know only focused on carbon or managing that right but i yeah. but i think in the past a lot of investors maybe would have sort of rounded it to that but but mm. i'm not so sure that that simple answer is the correct one yeah no kidding uh, i, I want to pivot in, and we we're talking about the european majors do you think shell will actually move their headquarters because i saw that kind of floating around and i don't know if it was just like comical relief but was that actually a thing well there are uh, some proposals that have been put out by f- financial market participants that no? suggest <laughs> okay. that have indicated that BP and Shell sh- should consider moving their headquarters <laughs> oh, wow. to North America. And and I believe Shell's new CEO, according to FT reporting, is that they at least thought about it or considered it and, yeah. and they ultimately decided not to right because because they recently moved their headquarters to to london uh if right. you recall yeah. and the but the basic argument would would be that uh 
that ESG investment framework has put a lot of uh, conditions on European energy majors or oil majors that are don't allow them to thrive. Mm. And that if they move to North America, they would get a better reception from the sure. general investor base. And I, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but generally speaking, if you look at a valuation perspective, so like an EV to EBITDA multiple, what, whatever your favorite valuation metric is, mm-hmm. the European oil majors tend to trade at a significant discount to mm-hmm the U.S. oil majors, right? And so there's all kinds of theories as to why that happens. Um, But one of the reasons or one of the speculations for why that discount might exist is because of sort of the ESG pressure or whatever. And so if those companies were to change their uh, headquarters to North America, I guess the the theory would be that may, maybe they could have a, um, you know, they, that they may not get that sort of discount because they're dealing with all the sort of European ESG hmm. investors or whatever. Who knows, oh. right? Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's it not sense. clear that that would necessarily be the answer, but yeah. uh, that 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 investors are looking for. But I think that's sort of in the back of the mind of uh, some of the people who've been making that argument and. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. I mean, yeah. obviously, they have big operations and footprints in North America already. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, again. I, I have some un like I, I don't have the necessarily the background or experience or knowledge on the financial world to understand why. But off the top of my head, it, to me, it's like, oh, they want a little taste of what they can get over here. I guess you know. I, again, I don't. I don't particularly know. But do you do you ever, do you suspect at some point? And I thought if, if it would have happened, I thought it would have happened already. But I was willing willing to bet that one of the U.S. oil majors would have ended up buying uh, a, some of the one one or two of the European majors. Do you think that's ever? Do you think that's a plausible thing to happen? Or, I mean, let's see, right? I mean, I, I've I've seen just like you. I've seen that there has been speculation about that for years, right? And part yeah. of it is because of the the valuation <clears throat> discount as to why. I think people uh, would would speculate that there's a potential for that, but uh, I, I think I think the question is, you know, does does the how how does the market want people to deploy their their cash and capital? And I I, yeah. I have no idea whether that's the sort of right answer i mean i think a lot of it would come down to kind of like asset portfolio of any of the european majors and whether it would be sort of a nice fit with any of the u.s ones and yeah and but the other thing too is you know the european majors have been investing in you know charging electric charging infrastructure and and wind uh generation uh facilities and things like that and would uh, would any of the U.S. companies want that? Because they have explicitly really taken a different perspective on right. those They've kinds of questions. And, like it's interesting looking at what like when you talk about you know, like the new energy stuff. It's the U.S. oil majors have looked at the carbon capture stuff and been heavy on that, whereas the Europeans have looked at like you said the charging stations and the you know the, the w- offshore wind and everything else. And so definitely a little bit of a different strategy there. Um, but, but yeah, again, there would have to be 
some synergies and some reasons why, not just because they can. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and BP's got a very sub- significant solar PV pipeline as well. Ah, and so okay. they're, they're really building out quite a bit of solar over the next three to five years. And okay. so, yeah, and, that, and that's an interesting piece of their strategy, right? And, yeah. and not, you know, no, I, I don't have a strong view on whether one company's strategy is better than the others, right? Sure. You know, that's, investors are constantly evaluating that. Yeah. But if, if any of the U.S. companies were to be interested, you know, the, they're not like-for-like entities, right? right. Because, it, because they really have a, quite a different sort of uh, strategic plan in place in in the european side yeah no thinking of shell actually was interesting so i was on instagram and they 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 created uh, so there's a shell energy um it is a i guess a, an arm of shell and i saw on instagram a, a pretty unique ad for electricity for here in texas um they're like getting into the utility game and so i reached out like out of the blue i said hey i'm so and so i have an energy podcast i would love to hear more about shell energy and what you guys are doing here in texas and well, and they actually reached back out, and so I'm going to have some Shell Energy uh, folks on to talk about what they're doing on that front because I had no idea. Um, they're into all sorts of stuff. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah, and the really interesting question there that I think we don't know the answer to yet is the the business model for utilities in oil companies has has been really pretty different over time and just generally speaking utility returns tend to be lower okay right stable but lower right and so the 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 question that i think no one knows the answer to is that well if if oil companies do take on more and more assets that are utility like uh are those are those utility like assets going to have a lower return over a long duration mm-hmm. or are the oil and gas companies going to figure out a way to offer better returns in a space that utilities have played in for yeah. uh, decades and and not been able to find a, a better uh, set of returns to offer to their investors and so yeah. we, we don't really know the answer to that but if you look on Shell or BP, when they when they talk about this question, they they do talk about the differentiation and expected return for some of those investments versus some of their say upstream investments. Right, because isn't a company? I don't know if it's pronounced correctly, but any or ENI mm-hmm. don't they play in like all sorts of different arenas when it comes to utilities, and then they're obviously an oil and gas company as well. And I mean, I I, I remember reading some stuff a couple years ago, and and. And then when I saw the Shell Energy thing, I was like, wow, it must be a European thing because, you know, I'm not buying electricity from Exxon or Chevron or, you know what I mean? So it's, again, it's just an interesting sort of a philosophy. Um, switching gears a little bit, I'm curious on the, on the, on the natural gas market side of things, uh, mainly in Europe, um, are we seeing, uh, reaching the floor closely to, to the gas market, the gas prices out there, or do you think there's more room? I mean, what are your sort of thoughts around European gas markets right now? Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't pay super close attention to the European gas market, uh, prices went just atmospheric after Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, 
we're down at this point, uh, I think more than 70% since the peak that we touched uh, last year, but we're still trading at a quite elevated level versus Russia's invasion of Ukraine or pre-pandemic, however you want to kind of think about it. So, uh, but prices on a dollar per MMBTU basis are in the neighborhood of $14 per MMBTU versus two and change here in the U.S. So gas is uh, pretty expensive. You know, as for whether we've uh, kind of found the bottom yet, well, you know, like I said, we're still elevated versus that uh, pre-pandemic or pre-invasion level. And I, I think really the market's going to be tight from a fundamentals perspective because Russia played an incredibly important role in supplying gas into Europe and their exports of gas to Europe have is they're not zero but there's Pretty very close to, the, to zero wow. I mean we we've we've you know the taps did get turned off last year and there's so many factors that have really helped them market find its balance so we we did have a very mild winter which which was, which was a blessing yeah, wow. for 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 making sure that uh the gas market didn't get super tight in the winter yeah at the same time u.s really ramped up lng exports very substantially to europe over the last 12 months mm-hmm. we have seen a pretty healthy amount of demand destruction from industrial activity, you know, yeah. the, the big players deciding to, you know, potentially move assets into North America or other markets, um, or figuring out ways to rely on other sources of um, energy, right? So mm. a lot of gas is used to create heat for processes, right? Yeah. And so you can some in some instances it's possible to even use coal uh to to create that heat and my understanding is that some companies actually went back to using coal uh this this last uh in an industrial uh setting this over the last 12 months we've certainly seen more coal being used in the power sector as well in europe so there's just this entire mix of um things that have happened to help the European gas market uh, find its balance. But the really interesting thing is sim- similar to the U.S., you know, there is gas storage in Europe, and we're, we're sec- essentially entering uh, the, or sorry, exiting the, the winter sort of peak demand season with uh, very high levels of storage uh, Which in, is in unusual, place. right? And right. Re- and that was based on, and that was because of the weather, Right, a good chance of it, and along with people, obviously, can demand or yeah, the demand coming down. And and so, you know, over the next call it six months or whatever, that that you know, there there will be efforts to refill that storage for the coming winter and things yeah. like that. But and so we we don't exactly know how that is going to play out. But you know, if we have a you know, hot summer, that'll make refilling the storage more challenging. If there's any hiccups on the LNG side or if demand is more robust, you know, it, it, we, we oh. just don't know. But so th- the market, it, it, I think, I guess what I would try to say is that 
we've come through a very difficult 12 months in terms of kind of this has been all a crisis essentially all hands on deck to kind of how does how does Europe make it through this losing a massive amount of supply right uh overnight and we've gotten through that 12 months but then next winter could be as challenging or even more difficult than the current than the past winter was if if the weather doesn't go in right. our favor or whatever so uh oh. it, this is going to take a few more years to pr- probably sort out so I, I think i do think from a supply demand perspective you know we we see the market is looking tight for for quite a bit more time yeah so so how does uh the deployment of say solar and wind and mainly on the electricity generation side of things is that helping offset the 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 demand in natural gas to is like is it enough to move the needle or is it still slow and steady and i mean how does that come into play yeah so solar and wind i think are key components of things of the sort of energy strategy in europe and possibly could play a role in helping to sort of tamp down on power sector gas demand. Mm. Uh, some other things that matter there, though, would just be, uh, I don't know if you followed the nuclear situation in France, but they've had yeah. they've had a pretty troubled uh, year. So mm. with all of the things going on, uh, a number of the nuclear reactors in France were down for maintenance, safety issues, things like that. And mm. so nuclear output was lower this year than I think most would have expected. And so despite all of that, we, we still made it through the winter and we are where we are today. But uh, you could you could think of maybe the fact that nuclear wasn't high uh, relative to what expectations would have been. You, you, the grid operators are doing all kinds of things, and coal coal was burning more as well in the power sector. And so, yeah. you know, all all in, I mean, every solar electron or wind electron that you put on the grid is is probably means. A less one less electron that's got to come from gas or coal uh, some some combination of those two right because i think nuclear and the other uh, others are sort of outside of your control a little bit you know you, you, if a nuclear power plant has to be down for maintenance that's that's never something you can say oh let's just d- delay it or whatever typically you, you got to do it because there's, there's like this strong safety element there yeah um so you know, if we're in a world where nuclear is kind of more robust in Europe and, the, you know, the next uh, wind or solar build out that's going to happen this year and next year, well, is it going to get rid of gas or is it going to get rid of coal? <laughs> I, I, a little bit of both, perhaps, would, would probably be the answer because yeah. coal did come back up because it was sort of backfilling for gas. So maybe... Maybe the sort of deployment of those don't explicitly reduce gas too much, but they might mm. reduce coal instead, which is an objective of the European governments over right. there. They, they want to get uh, coal out of the mix as quickly as possible. Gotcha. Do you follow coal prices at all or know where they stand relative to history? Yeah, coal has been a, an elevated commodity as well. So uh, I believe that we're below highs that we touched uh, last year but 
uh, year, at least in Europe, um, coal prices w- went up quite a bit alongside uh, <laughs> gas and <laughs> oil and other commodities um, yeah. fa- following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wow. And um, I know that one of my colleagues covers uh, Glencore, and Glencore is one of the big diversified miners, but they've been, uh, you know, doing quite well on the the coal side of their uh, business Mm -hmm. over the last uh, 12 months, even though I think uh, themselves and many of the other miners have sort of set a plan in place that by 2050, they're going to reach net zero or whatever, that kind of thing. So I assume that that coal eventually uh, falls out of their portfolios. But for for now, uh, coal coal has been uh, a bright spot for some of the companies like that. And I'm sure. um, Yeah, it has been more expensive to use it for sure. Yeah. What, uh, so talking about Europe, where, like, as we are today, where do they get most of the gas from, like uh, import-wise? Yeah, so uh, with with Russia, so prior to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia was the number one supplier. Norway was the number two supplier. Okay. Now Norway is the largest gas supplier in Europe, uh-huh. and Equinor uh, plays a. Uh, uh, big role in that and um yeah and then i think i think after that you've got some north sea production in in the uk and then you've got um some gas supplies coming from uh, north africa you've got lng imports you've Mm -hmm. got some gas flows coming from Azerbaijan and yeah. other places like that and kind of the, the more far eastern parts of Europe. Yeah. But uh, by far, it's Norway at the moment. And then I, I believe LNG might be number two, <laughs> actually, hmm. which has a, a, you know, if you can, but that's a diverse set of um, countries of origin. It's not, not all from the U.S. or whatever, but if you counted that as a block, it's a it's it, suddenly gone to be a very important piece of the um the overall balance and uh yeah and let's uh, let's let's see how it goes i mean our view though is that russia is not coming back though right so right you know, which is a fair, i think a fair kind of assumption and, and sort of way to look at it right it's a, it's a safe bet to think that and then if all of a sudden not then then even better but uh it's not, it's crazy to think how markets you know, fix themselves or find ways to, to overcome just the chaos. Because for a while, everyone was like, the world's coming to an end. Like Europe's just, everyone's going to freeze to death. And then here we are like warm winter, they get enough gas. Now all of a sudden they have more storage than what they thought they'd ever have. And it's just like, how did we do this? But we find a way. Yeah, (laughs) no, indeed. And I think, I think it's kind of funny to think, you Germany is a successful industrial economy. And you know, if you, if you, it's not as if these kinds of crises occur and everyone just throws their hands up in the air and just says, oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah. and I think a lot of serious people put their heads down and, and yeah. sort of thought about, well, what what do we need to do to get, get through this? So, yeah, it's been pretty interesting. I mean, I'm, cu- I'm curious to hear your perspective on North America's role in all of this because I think 
I think one of the surprising pieces is how quickly uh, U.S. almost sort of came to the rescue with LNG. But my sense is that on the liquefaction side of the equation that the U.S. is kind of probably maxed out for now and and doesn't have a whole lot of ability to sort of grow it much more quickly here in the short run. Is that that how you would see it? You think that's the sort of right view yeah i don't know how much more capacity we have to export like as of today now there's i think three major uh, liquefaction plants coming online over the next few years or i say few up maybe the next five sort of staggering um at which they're going to be completed but when you look at like folks like toby rice and a lot of the the big pro natural gas folks that play in that world um i think it's going to play a critical role for just overall, because I guess it depends on, and I've heard kind of two schools of thought is like, you know, we always talk about peak oil demand, but what does peak natural gas demand look like? I mean, are we going to have to continue to untap and increase export capacity to where, you know, like it doubles in the next 10 years, or are we going to get to a point where all of a sudden everyone has, you know, for us to export, most of our stuff's going overseas, right? So is all of a sudden uh, that part of the world going to have enough gas in that part of the world to where then the U.S. is going to sit on their own and then gas prices are going to go super low, which is not terrible. And then energy security comes into play. Um, But again, and and I'm by no stretch of the imagination an energy markets uh, expert, but I try and pay attention enough. And and I know that like you talk like you look at the Haynesville and the Marcellus it has the potential to alleviate a lot of stress when it comes to supplying uh, you know, a relatively cheap gas to for us here domestically um, and to the rest of the world. And when you look at sort of the, the cl- from it from a climate perspective, there's argument that, oh, it's not actually that clean. However, it's cleaner than than a lot of the alternatives um, to where then is it that bridge fuel? I know that's been a term that's been thrown around. Some people hate it. Some people still use it. Uh, but I say all that to say, I mean, I think I think the U.S. plays a major role in helping with a lot of the headache that we've experienced um, to hopefully help stabilize markets, uh, I think would be a fair way to say it. And then here in the U.S., for us, especially if we look at, like, a lot of industrial, if we can bring that a lot of it from offshore here and being able to, um, because, like, a lot of the natural gas is a lot of feedstock that goes into that, so if those prices can can remain low, then hopefully that helps drive down costs for us to manufacture our own goods here. Because right now that's a challenge. Whenever you bring things domestically, especially on the chemical side, which is the sandbox I play in, um, it, a lot of times it's more expensive. So if we can drive down costs because we sit on a lot of you know cheap gas for industrial, I think that helps us. So that's kind of my two cents. And if we can drill for more, then that helps me because you know rate count is good. <laughs> I'm curious, so obviously when you frack a well, drill a well, you, you, you get some, you probably get some mix of gas and oil in the output, and yeah. in, given where Henry Hub pricing is at, you know, for our, if, if a company's out um, executing a drilling plan and they come up with a higher gas weighting, are they are they almost disappointed right now, given given where gas prices relative to oil, or you yeah. know how 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 how, do, how how does that play into it? I mean, can can I guess my question is, you know, can you make 
good money at at Henry Hub being you know two three dollars per MMBTU. Does it need to be higher? So it's very area specific, right? It's mm-hmm. basin specific. Now, if you talk to I think up in the northeast, the Marcellus, I think that low twos is is kind of that break even point. So folks right now are still in the position to make money. Obviously, not as much. Haynesville, I think, is a little higher. But when you when you look at like Eagleford and Permian, where there's associated gas, Permian they don't know what to do with the gas. There's not enough takeaway capacity. So again, it's very area specific, but you, you take, for instance, say a, say a, an operator has a drilling program where they have acreage that, you know, on this part of the field is heavy oil. And then on this, or like more oil focused. And then on this side, it's more gas focused. A lot of times they're just going to reduce activity until they can get it back. Cause I know, you know, from my personal experience working with a certain operator, once gas got below three dollars they right away changed their drilling program because at that point it doesn't the the economics don't make sense so again i think it's very operator specific it's very basin specific i'm not exposed to that you know typically but i do know that when gas was high a lot of that associated gas that people were actually able to sell it was awesome but for the most part i don't think these gas i think these gas prices are enough to control activity levels on, on the downside, which ultimately we're starting to see, which I say we're starting to see. Last week, I think we saw uh, eight rigs get added to the board. And it's funny, since oil's gone down, well, obviously oil's gone down and gas has gone down, you're not seeing, you, I think you're going to see the, the rig count impact, but it, there's a lag there. Because yeah. as gas has went down, we've actually seen an increase in in gas rig count because typically it's 80 20 here in the u.s 80 percent oil focused rigs 20 percent gas focused rigs now it's 21 percent gas focused rigs. so we actually got a little bump there now i'm sure that'll all balance out but it's interesting because it's not directly correlated even though you'd think it would be but knowing what i know about people's drilling plans um they're actively making plans to to slow down a little bit on activity especially if you're exposed to gas so it's really interesting and i i, I mean i know we got to sort of find a stopping point yeah, here pretty I, soon I but i was i was gonna say uh, uh, let's circle back on the on the bridge fuel idea and I'll, okay. I'll tell you that at least in europe i think gas is not seen as a bridge fuel anymore okay given what's happened with russia ukraine whereas i think it still has a great potential to be that here in north america because of the abundant shale resource and mm-hmm. quite a sort of good pricing environment, right? Gas is just too expensive to be seen and, and too potentially subject to geopolitical risk in Europe to ah. be seen as a sort of reliable bridge fuel. Right now in Europe, let's see whether these plans actually pan out a lot, but there's a lot of emphasis on hydrogen. And, uh, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I think that's still kind of, quite abstract and we're not really at the project realization phase of any of that but i think they're putting a lot of eggs into the basket of sort of pairing electrolyzers with renewables that can produce hydrogen and that that will be sort of a a key component of industrial energy needs but we'll see okay well last question then before we close out we'll tie it up with this one what emergent what emerging technology do you know of that's that that is really interesting to you that is not quite getting the attention that you see having a bit of more impact than what the public may anticipate anything special i mean that interests you yeah i mean it's 
In some ways, I think that we can kind of see where the energy complex is headed. And and so I, I think the future is going to have quite a bit of renewables at this point and wind, wind and solar. But th- then I think the question is, what, what are they going to get paired with? Because renewables are great at providing energy, but they're not, you know, it's only available when the resource is available. And so, you know, is it during the daytime or is it when the wind is blowing? Yeah. And so clearly there will be other components of the energy matrix. And I think we're still trying to figure out what those will be. There are a lot of folks who say, well, it's going to be nuclear, or it's going to be hydrogen, or it's going to be carbon capture and storage. Right. And I think that we really don't know. But for the longest time, some people would have said it's going to be some kind of advanced biofuel, right? right. And, and, yeah. and I think uh, Exxon worked with um, Craig Vintner and synthetic genomics for for a number of years on kind of advanced biofuels, and I don't know where any of that stands. But the point is that there is clearly going to be, I think, some kind of storage medium or energy supply that we we don't really know for sure which one it's going to be. And so I think that's interesting to sort of (laughs) say, you know, is it going to be nuclear? Is it going to be hydrogen and, and and which which one's really gonna sort of rise to the equation to match with uh, the kind of things that are a bit more sort of happening uh, yeah. and 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 known at this point and then yeah. I, I don't know the answer to those but I'm, right. I'm certainly watching with yeah. curiosity and uh, yeah. probably take views on them on occasion but sure. um, that's okay yeah, yeah yeah awesome well look this has been a great conversation Rob I'm so happy we could meet here at the Bloomberg office yeah appreciate the hospitality uh, for all the listeners out there please make sure you connect with Rob um, heavy on Twitter I'll put the link in the show notes um, or your handle on, in the show notes. And then um, you obviously you have your YouTube channel, which you're very active on now, which I'm yeah. pumped to see. We're going to put this there as well. So Awesome. I'd love to see it. And then TikTok. Are you on TikTok? I'm yet? not on TikTok. Okay. Well, I, I'm basically not on TikTok. <laughs> I think I used it, it all, like man. once. And <laughs> okay. uh, it was fun. Yeah. But it's a bit, I'm, I'm, I think I'm 20 years too old. Nah, never. Never. No, that's, hey, you know what? My mom said that about Facebook, and now she spends more time on Facebook than any other platform. So, I wouldn't go go quite that far. And look, all listeners, thank you very much. Appreciate all the support. Until next time, take care for now. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.